This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Frierks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. So I have some very good news for you to start off this episode of the Best Song Podcast. After 11 years of being made to feel like second class at the Academy Awards, the songwriters who get the most votes for the best song of 1945 will win the actual Academy statuette, affectionately called Oscar. Every year before this, the winners receive plaques that don't look as good on a mantle. The Academy did good by allowing all previous winners of the Best Song Award to trade in their plaques for the Oscar, and just about everyone did so. You might have noticed that I rarely used the word Oscar in previous episodes because songwriters hadn't been competing for the gold-plated statuette that bore that name. Now, the eight-and-a-half-inch man is handed out to every winner at the Academy Awards ceremony, so I'm going to be saying Oscar a lot more now. Oh, and there's more good news. World War II is over. Two months after the 17th Academy Awards in March 1945 that honored Going My Way with seven awards, including Best Song, the war on the European front ended with the unconditional surrender of Germany and Italy. The Pacific side of the war still dragged on into the summer of 1945, with Japan finally surrendering on August 15, 1945, just two weeks after the Americans bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hollywood did its part in the war effort, with many actors serving in the army and others entertaining the troops through USO tours. A lot of the movies made in Hollywood were shipped overseas for soldiers to enjoy as well. Though the war was nearing its end, the need for war-related plots in the movies remained important as many studios still wanted to pay tribute to those who fought for freedom. Six of the 14 songs nominated for the Oscar in 1945 have war-related plots. Yeah, I said 14 songs nominated for the Oscar. Remember that Academy rules stipulated that a studio or production company submitted one original song to the Academy, and that song got an automatic nomination. We're going to hear all 14 songs on this episode, but before we do, I want to remind you that I will be dishing out some major plot spoilers about film plots, so be prepared. The large number of nominated songs produced an interesting statistic. Two songwriting teams each earned two nominations this year. One of them, being last year's winning songwriting team. And that would be Johnny Burke and James Van Heusen, who wrote the winning Swinging on a Star and worked on one song for Crosby's next film the following year called The Bells of St. Mary's. According to director Leo McCary, The Bells of St. Mary's is not a sequel to Going My Way, despite what every description of the film calls it. McCary has said that The Bells of St. Mary's has only the character of Father O'Malley in common with Going My Way, and that one could see The Bells of St. Mary's as a prequel to that movie. As an example, Bing Crosby's character, Father O'Malley, is not as confident in his work as a priest as he was in Going My Way, and there is no mention of World War II, which would have been hard to ignore in one of the film's subplots. Also, Barry Fitzgerald's Oscar-winning role as Father Fitzgibbons from Going My Way is not mentioned, and O'Malley never brings up St. Dominic's in conversations about his previous work. 
Filming of The Bells of St. Mary's began in February 1945, just two months after Going My Way was released, and one month before Going My Way would win all of its Oscars. In addition to being one of the first movie prequels, it was the first movie to feature the Oscar-winning lead actor and lead actress, and the winning director from the previous year. Ingrid Bergman, who was now at the top of the most loved actresses in Hollywood, almost assured that The Bells of St. Mary's would be a hit based solely on the names on the marquee. McCary made the movie independently from the profits he made on Going My Way, and RKO Pictures was the lucky distributor. The Bells of St. Mary's isn't really a musical, though Crosby does sing often. Burke and Van Heusen's contribution to the film is one song called Aren't You Glad You're You, which feels similar to Swinging on a Star in tone, in that both songs are about helping children feel better about themselves. O'Malley sings it to one of the students at the school where he works, a girl named Patsy. She's writing an essay about the five senses, and O'Malley steps in to give her some inspiration that will make her essay stand out above the other students. Every time you're near a rose, aren't you glad you've got a nose? And if the dawn is fresh with dew, aren't you glad you're you? When a meadow lark appears, aren't you glad you've got two ears? And if your heart is singing too, aren't you glad you're you? You can see a summer sky or touch a friendly hand or taste an apple pie pardon the grammar but ain't life grand and when you wake up each morn aren't you glad that you were born think what you've got the whole day through aren't you glad you're you After the song, Patsy decides to add a sixth sense to her essay, the sense of spiritual feeling, and it results in an A plus for Patsy. It's easy to imagine walking, or even skipping if you're into that sort of thing while listening to the song, thinking about a field on a sunny summer day. It's as upbeat and charming as the object listed in the lyrics, a rose, a meadowlark song, an apple pie, just to name a few. All of the other songs in the Bells of St. Mary's had been written decades earlier, so it was very cut and dry which song was going to get nominated for an Oscar for RKO. The odds of Burke and Van Heusen getting a second consecutive win from this song was somewhat low, if you base its odds on record sales. Aren't You Glad You're You ranked only as high as number 8 on the Billboard charts, a dismal performance for a new Bing Crosby song. But that wasn't the only Crosby song vying for the top spot in late winter, early spring 1946, and we'll hear the other one a bit later in this episode. Johnny Burke and Jimmy Van Heusen were a little busier for their other 1945 film project, Bell of the Yukon, turning out four songs for the movie to be sung by Dinah Shore. The one that gets the Oscar nomination is Slade Ride in July. It's a weird song title, yes, and... Burke's intent is to put a spin on the common phrase, taken for a ride. The song performance comes after Dinah Shore's character, Letty, learns that the man she loves, played by William Marshall, 
is on the run from the law and possibly married. Just after she confronts the man about leading her on, she has to go on stage to sing. And it's Sleigh Ride in July that she sings, a torch song that is sung twice. First, it's a sad tune as Letty cries about her misfortune. The romance, she sings, was only make-believe, like a sleigh ride in July would be. After collecting herself backstage with a few words of encouragement, she returns to sing again, this time in better spirits as she looks back on her lost love without regrets. Was only make believe. 
friends were safe all winter And then to think that I was taken for a slave The only thing needed to change the tone of the tune is to change the key, a very simple thing for Van Heusen to do. When Dinah Shore's version was recorded for commercial sale in January 1945, it did well, ranking in the top 10 on Billboard sales charts for a few weeks. Another song that did well for Dinah Shore from the movie was Like Someone in Love, which she sang to her intended before things went wrong for them. This song, and I Can't Tell You Why I Love You, Burke and Van Heusen were free of their shackles put on them by Bing Crosby, who forbade them from using the word love in any song they wrote for him. Many would argue that these songs aren't as popular as any love song they wrote for Crosby, and that says a lot about Crosby and his way of conveying love without singing the word. Jules Stein and Sammy Kahn were the other songwriting team earning two Oscar nominations for songs they wrote in 1945. The first one we'll hear is Anywhere from the movie Tonight and Every Night. The movie is told mostly in flashback about an acting troupe in London that never missed a stage performance during the World War II air raids on London. Rita Hayworth is the star of the movie and the star of the acting troupe, in love with a fighter pilot played by Lee Bowman. Bowman's pilot is continually called away on missions, much to Hayworth's constant concern, and more than an hour of the film is devoted to scenes of Hayworth wondering if the man she loves has died in battle. His final mission turned out to be a secret one, and his return to London is accompanied by actress Janet Blair singing Anywhere during an onstage performance. chase I'll go where you are dear it doesn't matter how far dear I take a trip to a star dear for that warm embrace just say you care and I'll go Place. 
With the song playing as the two lovers are reunited, officially engaged, and ready to get married, the lyrics are very poignant. We don't get much time to enjoy the song since it lasts just 70 seconds, but we had an instrumental portion of it 18 minutes earlier in the film when one of the stagehands is asked to go on stage and perform. The music is played comically, with Rita Hayworth dancing on stage as if in a vaudeville show. Are you ready, Professor? Let's give him one. I played 108 courses of this. Give him another one, boy. The song is only 70 seconds long, as I said, probably not enough to help it be remembered when it was time for Academy voters to pick the best song of the year. Also, the film was released in January 1945 at the beginning of the awards eligibility period, and with no commercial release of anywhere, Columbia was lucky they had control over making sure the song got an Oscar nomination. The title song for Tonight and Every Night is performed twice serves a stronger purpose to the film, and might have made a better choice for Columbia's nominated song. The first time Tonight and Every Night is sung, it's a testament to the English strength and resilience through the worst parts of the Blitz. Rita Hayworth sings it in the finale, just after two of the performers in the show have died in a bombing across the street from the theater. The resilience of the lyrics remains, but the song is now about the acting troupe that will stay operational, as a memory to the actors they lost. If you've a faith like mine, the stars are bound to shine. The skies will all be bright tonight and every night. Every night. So keep your spirits high, the clouds will all roll by. We've got a goal to sight tonight and every night. Every night. Say hi. 
what you were And how about you left? Why so sad? Tell me how can we go forward when you're in reverse? If you agree with me, let's have some harmony so what if it's not right? Whatever song is played will help your worries fade and make your cares take flight tonight and every night. Every night we're gonna win. Come on, win. Stein and Kahn's second nomination of 1945 is another love song called I Fall in Love Too Easily from the hit musical Anchors Away. Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly are the two big stars of the film, vying for the love of Katherine Grayson. The lasting legacy of Anchors Away comes from the famous dance between Kelly and Jerry the Mouse in a live-action animated hybrid sequence that is still talked about almost 80 years later. Outside of Kelly's superb dancing, which had already been proven on screen and was a big draw for movie audiences, Sinatra had a chance to prove himself alongside Kelly. Sinatra got three songs to sing solo, all of which were composed by Stein and Kahn. According to Kahn's autobiography, Sinatra had his pick of songwriters for Anchors Away, and he immediately suggested Sammy Kahn. We don't mind hiring him, the MGM executives told Sinatra about Kahn, but who is he? Well, no one would be asking that question about Sammy Kahn or Jules Stein by the end of the 1940s. But at the time, Kahn and Stein were still trying to break through in Hollywood, despite having two Academy Award nominations to their credit. Sinatra put his foot down and he forced MGM to hire the pair to write songs for him. To be honest, all of the songs sound the same from a musical standpoint. They're tailor-made for Sinatra's voice, and he runs through the melody so well, you get the feeling that comes from hearing a voice as smooth as Sinatra's. Two of the songs, What Makes the Sunset and The Charm of You, are pretty much the same, singing about a woman's beauty and its effect on him. But it's the nominated song, I Fall in Love Too Easily, that turns the love song on its ear. It comes almost two hours into the film after Sinatra and Kelly have failed to get a woman into an audition for the famous conductor Jose Iturbi. Sinatra's character realizes that if he hadn't fallen so hard for Grayson that he wouldn't have led her on to believe he could get her the audition. After missing the opportunity to talk with Iturbi at the Hollywood Bowl, Sinatra sits at a piano and begins to sing sadly about his predicament. I fall in love too deep. 
The only problem with the song is that it's too short at just 90 seconds in the film. According to Kahn, who wrote in the introduction to the book Sammy Kahn's Writing Dictionary, that, quote, When I sang the last line of the movie version, Jewel Stein looked over at me and said, So, that's it? I knew he felt we could have written more, but I felt I had said all there was to say, and if I had to do it over, I would stop right there again, end quote. Stein expanded the song to three minutes with a minute-long musical bridge before the chorus repeats. That made for the perfect length for a commercial record, which Sinatra made in December 1944 and was released a few months later as a modest hit. Sinatra's competition on the Billboard charts also played a Navy man in a 1945 movie. Bing Crosby stars in Here Come the Waves, a tribute to the women in the Naval Reserve, and the first movie Crosby filmed after his Oscar-winning performance in Going My Way. The movie was released in January 1945, a full 11 months before The Bells of St. Mary's. That gave Bing three profitable movies within an 18-month period, cementing his status as the top male movie star of the decade. Johnny Mercer, Crosby's number two lyricist, joined with winning songwriter Harold Arlen to write 10 songs for Here Come the Waves, nine of which were used. There's also a performance of their 1943-nominated hit, That Old Black Magic, which introduces us to Crosby's character, Johnny Cabot. Bing puts a more swoonsworthy spin on the song than Johnny Johnston did in Star Spangled Rhythm two years ago. But the Mercer Arlen song that got the Oscar nomination in 1945 was Accentuate the Positive, Bing's eighth time introducing an Oscar-nominated song. I wish I could say that I had a fun time watching Bing's performance of this song in the film, but it was not enjoyable in the least. The song is fun, though. It's performed as part of a stage show that Cabot is putting on to recruit more women into the Navy, and the first number features Cabot in blackface as a mailman who encounters another white man in blackface as a volunteer helping with the war effort. This man is talking negatively about his work, and Bing enters, in blackface, with a message of positivity with a dance bridge in between. You got to be positive. You got to accentuate the positive. What you mean by that, man? You got to accentuate the positive, Elin. Minus the negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread joy up to the maximum. Bring gloom 
down to the minimum have faith or pandemonium liable to walk upon the scene to illustrate my last remark jonah in the world knowing the art what did they do just when everything looks so dark man they said you gotta accentuate the positive healing minus the negative latch on to the affirmative don't mess with mr in between no do not mess with mr in between you gotta accent oh wait the positive my negative latch on to the affirmative don't mess with Mr. In-Between. They got to spread joy up to the maximum. Green glue down the minimum. Look out, Jack. A pandemonium libel to walk upon the scene. To illustrate, well, demonstrate my last remark. The floor is yours.
Bing Crosby had publicly declared his admiration for blackface performances, calling them a tribute to the black performers of the time. And Bing Crosby was indeed ahead of his time in bringing such notable black musicians as Louis Armstrong into prominent roles in his movies, even while he mocked them in the next scene. What makes the performance of Accentuate the Positive so grating is the fact that the blackface isn't needed. Crosby and his stage companion, played by actor Sonny Tufts, could have been on stage without blackface and performed the song just as well. The song lyrics do feel like they were written specifically to be performed in a minstrel show. The way they sing them makes them sound like they are trying to sound black. And as a black man in the 21st century, it just makes no sense to me. Lyricist Johnny Mercer explained why the song is rooted in the Negro music of the time. In an interview with the Pop Chronicles radio show, he said his publicity agent heard a sermon by the black pastor Father Divine, where Divine said, quote, you have to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative, end quote. And Mercer replied, wow, that's a colorful phrase if I ever heard one. The stops in the middle of the words accentuate and eliminate came from Arlen's original melody that he had played for Mercer, and Mercer made those words fit. It was like getting an elusive crossword clue, Mercer had said, of fitting his lyrics in with Arlen's catchy melody. Bing, of course, put the song on a record, and it sold very well. The commercial record blends the minstrel sound with a boogie-woogie feel thanks to the appearance of the Andrews sisters. to accentuate the positive Eliminate the negative Latch on to the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between You got to spread joy up to the maximum Bring gloom down to the minimum Have faith or pandemonium Liable to walk upon the scene To illustrate his last remark, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the ark. What did they do just when everything looked so dark? Man, they said we better accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. No, do not mess with Mr. In-Between. Do you hear them? Oh, listen to me, chillin' Anna. You were here about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. Gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. You gotta accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You got to spread jar up to the maximum, bring gloom down, down to the minimum, otherwise, otherwise, pandemonium liable to walk upon the scene. To illustrate, well, illustrate my last remark, you got the floor. Jonah, Jonah in the whale, Noah in the, the ark. ark. What did they say? 
say? What did they say? Say when everything looks so dark. Man, they said we better accentuate the positive. Eliminate the negative. Latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between. No, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. This is the version of the song I had known for many years, and I had never seen Here Come the Waves until I recorded this podcast. So even though Mercer himself had recorded a version a couple of months earlier, it sold just as well as Bing's versions. Now that I've seen the film performance of the song, my perspective of Accentuate the Positive has changed. But if this were 1945, I might have a different view of it, but maybe not. And because it was a popular song, that meant two Bing Crosby tunes had high odds to take home the Oscar. But would it be written by his favorite lyricist, Johnny Burke, or his other favorite lyricist, Johnny Mercer? Harold Arlen's lyricist for Over the Rainbow, Yip Harburg, found himself in the Oscar race for 1945 with the song More and More from the movie Can't Help Singing. The composer for the song was Jerome Kern, who was also responsible for some of the underscore. Kern and Harburg were hired to write songs for the 23-year-old singing star Deanna Durbin, who had gotten into some trouble with Universal Pictures by, are you ready for this? Not liking the roles she was offered. Imagine that. So Universal suspended her for six months, then caved in to her demands. Durbin was now in charge of picking her roles, directors, and even songwriters. Durbin and Universal couldn't go wrong with Kern, the only songwriter at that time to have won two Academy Awards, and Harburg, the lyricist behind one of the best movie songs. In the 2009 edition of the Oxford Companion to the American Musical, Thomas Hischak wrote that the songs in Can't Help Singing, quote, provided the best original score of Durbin's career, end quote. Of the six songs that Kern and Harburg wrote, Universal's music department picked more and more as the Oscar nominee. If you haven't seen the film, Can't Help Singing, but if you have been paying attention to this podcast, you could guess quite confidently that more and more is the film's love song because that's often the one that gets the nomination. And you'd be kind of right. There's another love song from the film, and it's called Any Moment Now, which is Durbin's character's Caroline way of expressing that she's starting to fall in love with the man who is accompanying her from Missouri to California, and not the man she's traveling to meet and eventually marry. This song has all the makings of being great, from Durbin's operatic voice at the conclusion of the song, to the lush and bold orchestrations, to the fantastic Technicolor outdoor scenery. With this song, Kern and Harburg both have a chance to shine. All you did was breathe my name, hold my hand. Suddenly the world became What's 
by comparison, more and more is a very intimate declaration of love. There are very few instruments playing, just a few woodwinds and strings. Durbin doesn't get to belt out any notes as she lies next to a riverbank with Robert Page's Hunky Johnny. Harburg's words are the focus of this song as Durbin quietly declares that she has fallen in love and wants more and more of the qualities that makes Page's character so lovable.
get a nice reprise of the song when the two reach California for their happy ending. Paige even gets to sing a couple of lines while the whole town watches, as if they've never seen two people sing about falling in love. died in November 1945, long after the film was released, but just two months before he was nominated for scoring Can't Help Singing and for writing more and more. If he wins one or both music awards, he would be the second posthumous Oscar winner following Gone with the Wind screenwriter Sidney Howard, and he would be the first three-time Oscar-winning songwriter. The next nominated song on the list also has some history on the line with its nomination. Anne Ronald was the composer and lyricist for the song Linda, featured in the film The Story of G.I. Joe. Her nomination makes her the first solo female songwriter to earn a nomination, and she's the first female songwriter to be nominated since Dorothy Fields won her Academy Award eight years earlier in 1936 for The Way You Look Tonight. You could count on one hand the number of female songwriters in Hollywood in the early 1940s, and there's no documented explanation why so few women were in this line of work. Many of the female songwriters of the time, such as Kay Swift or Dana Seuss, were primarily trying to make it big on the Broadway stage. Ronell knew movies were the ticket to stardom, and she got a big break when she helped to write Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf for the Walt Disney short cartoon Three Little Pigs in 1933. It became popular as a metaphor for the strife of the Great Depression, but of course, songwriters rarely got the public credit they deserved, and Ronell stayed in the shadows. She made history in 1942 as the first woman to write music and lyrics for a Broadway show, composing the score for Count Me In. Ronell was offered the job of co-composing the score for the story of G.I. Joe, and it's not known how much, if any, of the underscore she wrote with Louis Applebaum, 
or if she just gets score credit because she wrote an original song for the film. That song, Linda, plays very early in the film during an evening when the soldiers of C Company are camping out in the Italian wilderness. A radio that seems to be encouraging and also mocking the American soldiers is playing, and the hostess of the radio show introduces the song. Now sing Germany's latest hit, with lyrics written especially for my handsome American friends. Night for me a cigarette in that small cafe where we met. Let me feel your fingertips, Linda, Linda, on my lips, where two lovers used to be. Are there echoes waiting for me? And do you? Not only is Ronell making history as the first woman to write an Oscar-nominated song on her own, but her song becomes the shortest in Oscar history at only one minute long. What's confusing about the song is that it seems to be written from the perspective of a man waiting for Linda at their favorite cafe. But it's a woman who sings the song. Let me feel your fingertips, Linda, Linda, on my lips. Hmm. Either this was supposed to be a man singing or the censors let a lesbian love song pass right by them. If you thought Linda was a short song, wait until you hear the title song to the movie Love Letters. It's so short, it doesn't appear at all in the movie. Yeah, that's right. The song Love Letters received an Oscar nomination for Best Song, even though it wasn't performed in the movie. You hear the melody continuously throughout, And I've watched the movie twice, and there are no lyrics sung in this movie about a woman suffering from amnesia after supposedly killing her husband. I thought I might have missed it playing on a record player during a scene with the two main characters, but that's just the music. I thought maybe it was in the opening credits and I had zoned out during its performance the first time, but nope, it's nowhere to be found in the film. Victor Young wrote the music for the film, earning his 16th Oscar nomination for Best Score, as well as his first Oscar nomination for Best Song. After watching the film twice, I started to wonder if somebody had pulled a fast one on the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, nominating a song that didn't exist. But there is a song called Love Letters, using Victor Young's main melody from the film with lyrics by Edward Heyman. The song was an attempt by Hal Willis Productions, the company that submitted the song to the Academy, to create some sort of commercial crossover with the film, enlisting Dick Hames to record it after the film was released. The song would do well, getting as high as number 11 on the Billboard sales charts in 1945. straight from your heart He 
but so near while apart I'm not alone in the night when I can have all the love you write I memorize every Kiss the name that you sign And darling, then I read again Right from the start Love letters straight from your heart is one of the most successful songwriters to have not received an Oscar nomination up until this point. One of the songs he wrote in the 1930s became a very popular hit for Nat King Cole, called For Sentimental Reasons. He had contributed songs to one of Shirley Temple's biggest hits, Curly Top, back in 1935. Because the Academy only allowed three songs to be nominated that year, nothing from Curly Top made the list, but such songs as Animal Crackers in My Soup and When I Grew Up would remain Shirley Temple classics. It's amazing that no one raised any complaint about the inclusion of love letters on the list of Oscar nominees for Best Song. It was the job of the music branch of the Academy to vet each nominated song to make sure it fit all the requirements of eligibility. Apparently, the music branch didn't do its job that well since the rules state that the song, music, and lyrics must be, quote, written for and first used in a motion picture during the awards year, end quote. You remember that song, Pigfoot Pete, that was nominated in 1942, even though it was actually introduced in a movie released in 1941? The Academy did its due diligence to try and figure out that mystery, but when it comes to love letters, apparently no one actually watched the film in 1945 or later to find out where the song appears in the film or how it's performed. There's no footnote about the song in the official Academy record, and none of the historical books about the Academy Awards even hint at this controversial inclusion. The movie was quite popular, 
earning Jennifer Jones an Oscar nomination for Best Actress. And I guess no one cared if a semi-popular song was in the movie that the studio claimed it was in. The next song on our list is definitely performed in the film for which it was nominated. Not just once, but three times. The movie State Fair was the first film collaboration for songwriters Richard Rodgers and Oscar Hammerstein II, who were already superstars when the movie was released in theaters in August 1945. Before they met, Hammerstein was, of course, an Academy Award winner for the song The Last Time I Saw Paris, and Rodgers was nearing the end of a rocky collaboration with Lorenz Hart on Broadway. Together, Rodgers and Hammerstein had proclaimed themselves the kings of Broadway with their score for the 1943 musical Oklahoma, which won them the Pulitzer Prize for drama and changed the way songs were presented on stage. And just six months before State Fair would unspool on movie theater screens, Rodgers and Hammerstein had another hit on Broadway with Carousel. Hammerstein had also adapted George Bizet's opera Carmen for Broadway into the all-black musical Carmen Jones in 1943. So the two had their hands full on Broadway, but Hammerstein had an idea for a movie musical about a family at the Iowa State Fair. And when you compare the songs in State Fair to, well, anything in Oklahoma, the movie musical doesn't hold a candle to it, which is not to say that any of the songs in State Fair are bad. Bosley Crowther, one of the most persnickety film critics of the time, said it was an average screen musical, and his colleagues seemed to agree. But 20th Century Fox was glad to have these hot, hot songwriters on their payroll. And when it came time to pick the one song from this film that would serve as the studio's Oscar nominee, it was It Might As Well Be Spring. The song comes during our introduction to Margie Frakes, a girl who doesn't seem to like her life on the farm and is longing for something else. Sound familiar? I think Rodgers and Hammerstein were looking for their Over the Rainbow and set out to make their own version with It Might As Well Be Spring. That's not to say that Rodgers and Hammerstein were trying to copy Over the Rainbow or that Over the Rainbow was the first movie song to describe someone's wishes. The I Want song had been in Broadway musicals for many years, and almost all love songs or I Want songs as one person sings about wanting to be with the other person. But the solo I Want songs were gaining popularity after Over the Rainbow, and until now, most of them tried too hard and failed. While she is packing for the fair, and while her mother is urging her to help in the kitchen, Margie sings about being restless for something else in life, like walking down a new street, or thinking about a man she's yet to meet. This is the essence of what we call spring fever, and even though the movie is set in late summer, Margie feels like she has it, which is why she believes it might as well be spring. The things I used to like, I don't like anymore. I want a lot of other things I've never had before. It's just like Mother says I sit around and mope Pretending I'm wonderful 
And knowing I'm a dope. Margie? Yes, Mother? As soon as you're finished, I want you to come down and help me with the pickles. In a minute, I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string. I'd say that I had spring fever, but I know it isn't spring. I'm starry-eyed and vaguely discontented. Like a nightingale without a song to sing Oh, why should I have spring fever When it isn't even spring I keep wishing I were somewhere else Walking down a strange new street Never heard from a man I've yet to meet. I'm as busy as a spider spinning daydreams. I'm as giddy as a baby on a swing. I haven't seen a crocus or a rosebud or a robin. couple of scenes later, Margie's brother is on the phone with the girl he loves, or at least the girl he thinks he loves. And after that scene, we see Margie on the porch ready to reprise her song, thinking about a man who could love her. This mystery man has all the best qualities of Oscar-winning actors Ronald Coleman, Charles Boyer, and Bing Crosby. She even imagines their voices in her head, including the make-believe Bing Crosby, who finishes the song for her. down a strange new street Hearing words that I have never heard From a man I've yet to meet He would be a kind of handsome combination Of Ronald Coleman, Charles Boyer and Bing. Margie, my dear little Margie, I'd make the world a ruby for your little finger 
and say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Ah, Margie, you are beautiful. You are so very beautiful. And we feel so gay in a melancholy way that it might as well be spring. Those were not the voices of Ronald Coleman, Charles Boyer, and Bing Crosby. Neither of the actors were contracted by 20th Century Fox, so to get them to participate in this tiny part of the film would have cost Fox a lot of money. In order to find a name to rhyme with spring, Bing Crosby was naturally going to be one of her dream men. In order to get the voices of Coleman, Boyer, and Crosby, impersonators were hired, and I think they did a fantastic job, especially Bing Crosby's singing double. There's a somewhat comical reprise of It Might As Well Be Spring just a couple of minutes later, as Margie meets with the man who wants to marry her and live on a modern farm. As we've heard, this is not what Margie wants her future to look like, and that's conveyed here. In our air-conditioned patent leather farmhouse. Plastic. On our ultra-modern scientific farm. We'll live in a streamlined heaven. And we'll waste no time on charm. No geraniums to clutter our veranda. Nor a single little sentimental thing. No Virginia creepers. Nothing useless. There is one very brief reprise at the state fair after Margie meets newspaper reporter Pat Gilbert and they spend an afternoon together. As he talks, we hear Margie in voiceover singing words that I have never heard from a man I've yet to meet. So it's clear that this is going to be the man she will fall in love with in the final hour of the film. Spoiler alert, they do fall in love and live happily ever after. Gene Crane is the on-screen singer of It Might As Well Be Spring, but the voice you hear is her singing double, Luann Hogan. And in a strange bit of irony, Dick Hames, who plays Margie's brother in the movie, got to sing the song for the commercial recording. Hames's version was released in November 1945, a month after the nationwide release of the film. The record sold really well, getting up to number five on the Billboard sales charts and giving the song great exposure all the way up to Oscar voting season. On the flip side of It Might As Well Be Spring is the nominated song The Cat and the Canary from the movie Why Girls Leave Home. The movie was made by the low-budget Producers Releasing Corporation, which dealt mostly with B-movies that cost less than $100,000 to make. The script for Why Girls Leave Home was reportedly written in three days, with shooting starting the following day. Even though a script hadn't been written when they were hired, songwriters Ray Evans and Jay Livingston knew they needed to write songs for a couple of planned nightclub scenes. The first time we hear The Cat and the Canary is during a late-night jam session with some musicians, while the lead character, a budding singer named Diana, listens along. The music changes, and Diana is compelled to sing this hybrid of jazz and boogie-woogie about the romance between a singer and a musician in a jazz band, The Cat and the Canary, in the song title. 
was a cat. She was a canary in a razzmatazzy sort of jazzy kind of snazzy little band. She'd never flat, sing and light and airy. He was a musician with ambition to audition for her hand. As he wooed her and he wooed her, making music on his scooter, she would sing to the swing of his fire. He would jump it on the trumpet, would she like it, would she love it? Would the lady love give him a smile? Matter of fact, this petite canary never knew a fellow half as mellow who could sell a melody. I'm digging you, Jack, she said. You are the very palpitating fancy and a chappy from unhappy harmony. So the cat and this canary, they decided they should marry, raise a face the great road or two. Now they got a combination full of syncopation and they're liking it fine. Boy, of them kids have a Jay Livingston and Ray Evans celebrated their first Oscar nominations with this song after toiling away in Hollywood for barely a year. The two met as fellow members of the University of Pennsylvania dance band in the early 1930s, and composer Livingston and lyricist Evans started a partnership writing for Tin Pan Alley and Broadway. When they moved to Hollywood, they became a package deal, and it would become one of the longest songwriting collaborations, lasting more than 30 years pretty much uninterrupted. Broadway producer Earl Carroll got his name on the 1945 musical Earl Carroll Vanities, which featured five songs written by Kim Gannon and Walter Kent. The film was a fictionalized story about a stage review that would be produced by Carroll and feature a fictional princess as its headline singer. That singer is played by Constance Moore, who had a better career as a radio star than a film actress. Many of her movies failed to bring her lots of exposure, and that was sort of true for Earl Carroll Vanities. The only bright spot of acting in this movie was working again with co-star Dennis O'Keefe on ABC Radio for a fairly popular mystery show in the latter part of 1945. Moore sings the nominated song from Earl Carroll Vanities called Endlessly, not once, but twice in the film. The first time is a simple 90-second performance of the song in front of a piano during a rehearsal for the stage show. The lyrics by Gannon run off a short list of things that will keep going on until the end of time, like the world turning, the seasons changing, and the singer's love. Here, the way 
plot of the movie requires that Moore's princess not tell anyone of her royal background during rehearsals. But her mother finds out and forces her to quit just as she has fallen in love with the show's director. The finale features two performances from the finished stage show, all of which feature Moore as her character is convinced to take the stage. That gives us a lusher rendition of Endlessly, featuring the lyrics sung twice to pad the runtime. The presentation is definitely more visually stunning, with more than a dozen women walking on stage wearing ornate headdresses, while a male chorus sings the song once. Moore enters near the end and sings the entire 90-second song again. Jack Haley, who played the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, is the top name on the marquee of our next movie, Sing Your Way Home. But Haley finds once again that the adage of never working with children is true once again. He's upstaged by nearly a dozen teenagers who play singers stuck in Europe during World War II, looking to Haley's newspaper reporter to help them get back to the United States on an ocean liner. 
Reluctantly, he helps them. And along the way, we get four songs written by Allie Rubel and Herb Magidson. Rubel was 41 years old when he received his first Oscar nomination, but he wasn't new to the Hollywood songwriting business. He had been under contract with Warner Brothers until 1940, writing a spattering of songs for Busby Berkeley movies and others that never got much attention. And though he was teaming up with Academy Award winner Herb Magidson for Sing Your Way Home, none of the songs they created got much exposure, and the Oscar nomination for I'll Buy That Dream from a film that made barely $1 million showed how rapidly RKO Pictures was moving away from producing musicals. Our nominated song isn't headlined by the teenagers in Sing Your Way Home, but by Jack Haley's very adult love interest, played by Anne Jeffries. The kids serve as harmonizers in the first of two performances of the song, in which Jeffries sings about the plans she has with her lover for the future, including a romantic night, their wedding day, and being in their 80s. can't play the reprise here because the version I saw had about a minute of the performance cut out for some reason, but it was a fairly sweet rendition by the lead teenagers in the film, played by Marcy McGuire and Glenn Vernon. Even though I can't bring you their version, the commercial recording by Dick Hames, accompanied by Helen Forrest, is very close to the film duet. Imagine me with my head on your shoulder And you with your lips getting bolder A sky full of moon and 
mellow tune Up by that tree Imagine me in a gown white and flowery And you thanking Dad for my dowry A church full of folks And those last-minute jokes Up by that tree a honeymoon in Cairo In a brand new autogyro Then off to Rio for a drink We'll settle down near Dallas In a little plastic palace Oh, it's not as crazy as you think Imagine me, 83, wearing glasses And you, 92, making passes it doesn't sound bad And if it can't be had Up by that dream Imagine me with my head on your shoulder And you with your lips getting bolder A sky full of moon And a sweet mellow tune Imagine me in a gown white and flowery And you thanking Dad for my dowry A church full of folks and those last-minute jokes I'll buy that dream A honeymoon in Cairo in a brand-new autogyro Then home by rocket in a wink We'll settle down near Dallas in a little plastic palace. It's not as crazy as you think. Imagine me on our first anniversary with someone like you in the nursery. Oh, it doesn't sound bad. And if it can be had, I'll buy that dream. That duet equaled Accentuate the Positive as the best charting song of all the Oscar nominees of 1945, getting as high as number two on the Billboard charts. It was this song that cemented Dick Hames as a contemporary to Bing Crosby, and especially to Frank Sinatra, since they were about the same age. RKO wasn't making many musicals, but they were making a mint by distributing those made by other production companies. Three of this year's Oscar-nominated songs come from films distributed by RKO, with Sing Your Way Home, the sole homegrown RKO movie. The third film that RKO didn't produce but did distribute was Wonder Man, a musical comedy that was another big hit for rising star Danny Kaye. He plays an entertainer named Buzzy who was killed before he can testify in a murder trial, and his ghost torments his twin brother Edwin to continue the things he did while he was alive. Wonder Man is a pretty funny movie, much better than Danny Kaye's film debut, Up in Arms. If the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences had regarded comedy performances as equal to dramatic ones, there might have been a good shot for Danny Kaye to at least get a nomination for this movie. Playing twins is a tough thing to do, and the Los Angeles Times agreed, saying Kaye, quote, has a future in films beyond that of an entertainer with sophisticated double talk, end quote.
and that he had the potential to outdo the Marx Brothers in stage comedy. Danny Kaye had three song and dance performances in the film, and those songs were written by his wife, Sylvia Fine. When I talked about the top female songwriters earlier in this episode, I didn't mention Sylvia Fine because her career had been mostly limited to writing for Danny Kaye, which didn't get her much notoriety at the time. She would be an important figure when Danny Kaye makes the successful transition to television, writing music for many of the episodes of his self-named TV show. It makes sense that her songs were not voted on by the folks at Samuel Golden Pictures because the songs don't do much for the plot and lyrically don't have much weight to them other than giving Kay some funny wordplay. And then there's the Oscar-winning special effects, which look pretty good for 1945. If you encounter this movie, I do suggest taking the time to watch it. The Oscar-nominated song from Wonder Man is So In Love, and it came from the minds of David Rose and Leo Robin, who contributed just this one song to the movie. As I said before, the ghost of Buzzy helps his brother do things that Edwin would not normally do, including performing on a stage review in New York, which leads us to the performance of So In Love. It's performed in that stage show by dancer Vera Allen, making her screen debut. Vera Allen plays Buzzy's fiance, and the song could very well be about their love affair. She's in love, but doesn't really know if her man feels as much in love as she does. The song is performed just after she believes the man she saw backstage is Buzzy, but it's actually Edwin trying to act like Buzzy. She goes on stage, sings a verse of So In Love, and then gets advice from the Goldwyn girls, dressed in chiffon and holding strange poses. Once they advise her to play the field and he'll yield, Vera Allen launches into a long dance routine that features the song melody in a couple of places. Where on earth is Freddy? We've been going steady. We had a date to meet here at 8, and he's 10 minutes late already. Freddy. Freddy. So in love, I'm so in love. A part of my heart said no, no, no. The other part said let's go. And was I? Afraid, but I obeyed the part of my heart that said let's go I couldn't say no, no, no Just one week ago I made my mind up That I'd never fall again And then I wind up so in love But so in love I ought to feel high but I feel low And here's what I want to know the one I'm so in love with Love me so You have a problem? Mm-hmm. Is your Don Juan gone? Is your Casanova rover? Well, uh, hurry, hurry, hurry Step inside Absolutely free if you want to be a bride Come and gather wisdom's pearls Straight from the lips of the Goldwyn girls Hurry, hurry, hurry You're just in time Absolutely free uh, If you pay a dime Hey, 
wedding on a wedding you can plan cause the northwest mounted comes to us when they really want to get their man have you tried picking petals and seeing what it settles off a daisy have you tried mixing juleps with a stroll through the tulips while he's hazy have you tried weeping on his shoulder during Tristan and he's older? Have you tried baking him a biscuit? Or don't you think you ought to risk it? Have you tried Wheaties? But there's one sure cure that'll open his eyes. Just flirt with a couple of other guys. Cleopatra Rose on it.
it's actually a bit refreshing to see a lengthy song and dance performance coming from a nominated tune, especially when it can actually be connected to the plot. It's great to see Leo Robin back as a nominee, too, after six years off the list. You might remember that Robin wrote the lyrics for 1938's winning song, Thanks for the Memory. And since then, he stayed very busy with songs for several musicals, though not with his first partner, Ralph Ranger, who wrote the music for Thanks for the Memory. None of the songs that Robin wrote in the early 1940s were considered good enough to be voted on as a Studios Academy Award nominee, but Robin kept at it, and now he's back with nomination number five. This is David Rose's second Oscar nomination, and his last. His first was for writing the score to The Princess and the Pirate in 1944. Rose will make the move to television in the 1950s, including writing music for a Fred Astaire special. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of the songwriters from the 1930s and 1940s jump over to television as it becomes a viable medium in the early 1950s, which is what will make the way for new crops of songwriters to work alongside established talent in Hollywood. We've got one more nominated song to listen to on this episode, and lucky number 14 is called Some Sunday Morning from the movie San Antonio. Earl Flynn is the hero in this movie, and if you only know him from his work as Robin Hood or the swashbuckling Captain Blood, it might surprise you to see the Australian-born actor in Spurs and Riding Horses. But Flynn acted in several westerns in his career, all of them sort of the American version of the heroic characters he played in his younger days. Flynn is a big draw to the movie, and, well, that's about it. The script is a bit overplayed, and some of the scenes are melodramatic, but when Flynn is on screen, he really does sell the part. I'm sorry to say Flynn does not sing the nominated song Some Sunday Morning. That's performed by the film's love interest, played by Alexis Smith. Smith is playing an entertainer hired to perform at a San Antonio saloon run by the film's villain. And in her first number, she sings this love song about her future wedding day and the man who will be at her side. There's a verse that is spoken, and it details the beauty of the Texas wilderness to make the song relevant in the film. And why shouldn't I be? There's a reason, and the reason is as simple as A, B, C. Some Sunday morning is going to be. Some Sunday morning for someone and me. Bells will be chiming and all. Especially for someone and me There'll be an organ playing Friends and relations will stare Say, can't you hear them saying Gee, what a peach of a pear Some Sunday morning We'll walk down the I'll try to smile Things sure look rosy For someone and me Some Sunday morning You see 
ever gazed at the silvery moon hanging low in a Texas sky and looked out across the plains while the breeze hummed a tune to the tumbleweed tumbling by? Have you ever walked by the old Rio Grande? Have you ever seen sage all in bloom? Have you felt the delight of just roaming around way out there where there's plenty of room? Or did you ever ride down an old cattle train while the stars, like a million eyes, seem to look down and say, when you're down Texas way, you're really in paradise. Some Sunday morning we'll walk down the aisle. He'll be so nervous and I'll try to smile. Things sure look rosy for someone and me. We're waiting patiently to see how heavenly some Sunday morning can be. A male quartet enters the stage to perform the song over a dialogue scene, and you can tell that the lyrics aren't changed to suit the change in gender of the singers. I definitely heard the men sing, He'll be so nervous, and I'll try to smile, which is kind of cool to hear in a 1945 film, and something I think the censors didn't notice, or maybe they just didn't care. Ray Heindorf teamed with M.K. Jerome to write the music for Some Sunday Morning, and it was a busy year for Heindorf. In addition to writing this song and serving as musical director for the movie, Heindorf was also musical director for Wonder Man. Because studios just submitted their best work for the music awards, Heindorf got two Oscar nominations for scoring of a musical picture in 1945, as well as for writing Some Sunday Morning. The song nomination was a first for Heindorf in that category, and he was the first two-time Academy Award winner for Best Score taking home the award in 1942 for Yankee Doodle Dandy and in 1943 for This is the Army. Before we close out our discussion of Some Sunday Morning, I do want to mention that Alexis Smith had the ability to sing, but the executives at Warner Brothers decided to dub her voice with Bonnie Canvin in the film version. And wouldn't you know it, Dick Hames and Helen Forrest reteamed to perform the song as a duet for the commercial release. This one didn't sell as well as I'll Buy That Dream, and the spoken verse about the Texas landscape doesn't appear in their version. Some Sunday morning is going to be Some Sunday morning for Chiming an old melody, especially for someone and me. There'll be an organ playing, friends and relations will stare. Say, can't you hear them saying, Gee, what a beautiful pair! Sunday morning we'll walk down the aisle. He'll be so nervous 
So those are the 14 songs nominated for the Oscar in 1945. I'll go ahead and name them again because I would totally understand if you forgot some of them. In alphabetical order, they are Accentuate the Positive, Anywhere, Aren't You Glad You're You, The Cat and the Canary, Endlessly, I Fall in Love Too Easily, I'll Buy That Dream, It Might As Well Be Spring, Linda, Love Letters, more and more, sleigh ride in July, so in love, and some Sunday morning. It's a good thing the Academy Award nominees weren't announced in a big televised event in those days because reading the nominees in the best song category alone would have taken up a substantially long time. Even listing them in newspapers took up a lot of column inches. But that was nothing compared to the number of nominees for best score in a drama or comedy. There were 21 scores up for that award. Academy members had a big decision to make, and probably many of them wondered if they remembered some of the nominated songs. This was the perfect year for the Academy to start awarding the Oscar statuette to winners of the music categories. Since the war had ended, the Academy returned to handing out gold-plated statuettes instead of ones made of plaster for all the winners. When it came time to announce the winner at the annual banquet on March 7, 1946, the extravagant celebration had returned. The war was officially over, and Hollywood wanted to celebrate. Bob Hope and Jimmy Stewart were the co-hosts, and the return to glamour wasn't the only new thing on the show. This was also the first time the ceremony featured performances of all the nominated songs. And yes, all 14 were performed. Not the full versions, though. That would take forever. Just about a minute of each were sung. Future Oscar nominee Johnny Green served as musical director leading the orchestra for the performances during the Academy Award Hit Parade. The songs were performed in random order for the theater and radio audiences, with no mention of who was singing until the 16-minute segment was over. Frank Sinatra sang three songs, including I Fall in Love Too Easily, which he introduced in Anchors Away. 
Dinah Shore sang Sleigh Ride in July, which she introduced in Belle of the Yukon, as well as two other songs. Catherine Grayson performed four songs as well. Dick Hames, who made some of the nominated songs popular thanks to his studio recordings, was scheduled to sing just two songs, including the one from State Fair, It Might As Well Be Spring, and The Cat and the Canary. Bing Crosby was scheduled to sing the two songs he introduced in the movies in 1945, but he canceled the day of the ceremony, and Dick Hames did very good Bing Crosby impersonations for Accentuate the Positive and Aren't You Glad You're You. So those in attendance, many of whom voted on this year's best song, had a chance to decide if they made the right decision before the name of the winner was announced. After they were performed, Bob Hope opened the envelope to give the duo of Rodgers and Hammerstein an Academy Award for writing It Might As Well Be Spring. The Oscar statuette would give the pair something to sit next to their Pulitzer Prize for writing Oklahoma. And yes, Oscar Hammerstein remains the only person named Oscar to win an Oscar, and joins Jerome Kern as a two-time Academy Award-winning songwriter. Neither of the winning writers came to the show, so Alfred Newman, their boss at 20th Century Fox, accepted on their behalf. Endlessly was the final Oscar nomination for Walter Kent and Kim Gannon, who took their partnership to Broadway in 1941 for the musical Seventeen. It ran for less than a year, closing after 180 performances. There isn't much to tell of their lives after Seventeen flopped on Broadway. Both of them rarely worked after that, with royalties from their song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, keeping them sustained until their deaths. Gannon died in 1974 at age 73, and Kent passed away in 1994 at age 82. M.K. Jerome and Ted Kohler were a songwriting package in the mid-1940s, and this was their final Oscar-nominated song. There isn't much information about their careers after 1945, but many of their songs would be used often in movies, including Some Sunday Morning, Get Happy, and Stormy Weather. This is going to be the final Oscar nomination for Herb Madison, who will turn his talents to variety shows and specials on television through the 1970s. And at the time of the Academy Awards, Ali Rubel was preparing to start a contract with Walt Disney Pictures and getting started on his first feature for The Mouse House. Well, those were a lot of songs to listen to in one episode, wasn't it? And I think it's best to end here and rest up for the next episode. Just as a heads up, we won't be listening to 14 nominated songs on the next episode. As always, it's been great singing along with you on this episode. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.